but our churches and our parachurch ministries almost have turned that on the head. Instead, it's all about control and authority. And, and I think that that's where we make room for abuse. And that's why it's so important to name this in your policies and procedures and in your training. Welcome, everyone, to Reclamation Podcast. I am Naomi. I am the founder and executive director at Be Emboldened. And for any of you who are new to us, we exist for those impacted by religious trauma by providing support for the prevention of victimization and re-victimization. We desire to create a safe space for individuals to ask their questions and to begin the healing and rebuilding process. Today, I get to introduce you to someone that you may or may not have heard of, so I'm excited for you to get to hear this conversation. Today, I have Melody Bissell with us as our special guest, and she has quite a resume that I'm excited to share with you. She has worked with churches, charities, and not-for-profits in senior executive and risk management roles for most of her career. Melody launched Plan to Protect over 15 years ago with a desire to raise the bar on safeguarding on behalf of the vulnerable sector. She accomplishes this through consulting and training and providing leaders with the tools, training, and momentum needed to accomplish their vision and goals while safeguarding the mission of the organization and their people. It's not an easy feat, you guys. Melody is an author of numerous books and journal articles. Her most recent book is the 2022 version of Plan to Protect, a safeguarding guide for children, youth, and adults. As a victim advocate, Melody is committed to giving voice to victim for survivors of abuse as she stewards the disclosures and stories of abuse on behalf of clients. In 2022, Melody received her doctorate at the University of Toronto. The focus of her thesis was on nurturing the spiritual healing of victim survivors of abuse. So as you can probably tell from that introduction, she is a perfect guest for what we do here at Be Emboldened. And I am also so thankful that she is on my advisory team here at Be. So I get to consult with her and glean from the wisdom that she has to share. And I'm excited again to offer that to all of you today as well. So with that, I'm going to jump right into the first question. And to begin, I want to give all of you a bit more context for the conversation we're having today. So Melody, would you please share how Plan to Protect came to be and why it's important, not only for the organizations you work with, but for those who engage with those organizations? Hi, Naomi. It's always good to spend time with you. And similar to Be Emboldened, I think um, Plan to Protect was founded from personal experience I'm not a victim of abuse, but I have worked in organizations, churches, charities, not-for-profits, my whole career working with the vulnerable sector. I have served as a children's pastor. My own husband is a minister. I was executive director of a children's charity, and um, it would have been my worst nightmare if a child or a young person was abused under my watch. And I was a busy leader, a really, really busy leader. And it was um, in about 2000 when I was executive director of a Christian children's charity that my insurance company asked me what I was doing to prevent abuse. 
And um, so I filled out my insurance application form and I was pretty proud of all the things we were doing um, to create a safe environment for the 50,000 children we were working with. But the insurance company came back and told me I wasn't doing enough. And um, that took my breath away and caused me to really reflect on the prevalence of abuse. And I did a lot of research and reading, um, wanting to make sure that we were the safest charity out there. And the more I read and researched and started reading the lived experiences of victim survivors of abuse, be that physical abuse or spiritual abuse, um, sexual abuse, all of a sudden my eyes were completely opened up to the prevalence of abuse. And so in 2006, um, I resigned from that role as executive director of a charity. And I thought, wow, we need organizations that will come alongside of churches, charities, not-for-profits, and raise awareness of abuse and how to prevent it. I'm all about prevention. Mm. I, I love everything about what you just said. Yeah, I mean, and something that I think resonates with me on a personal level is you sharing that you yourself have not been a victim of abuse and yet you care enough about it that you created a whole new organization to help ensure the safety of people in the future as well as people from being re-victimized, of course, too. And there is something so particularly beautiful, I think, about people who don't resonate with our stories on like a deep personal level as in they they've experienced it as well but they're so moved to action because they care so deeply and i just i just see christ all the way through that and like just us caring about one another like that is a true example of loving your neighbor so thank you yeah no problem thank you I, for creating actu- something for people i actually think naomi Um, I once heard someone say that if an individual is abused outside of the church, they question the existence of God. But if someone is abused within the church, this then becomes their view of God. And that should never, ever, ever be. Um, It just breaks my heart that people associate um, a good, good God with someone that has harmed them and abused them. So I want to combat that all the way um, so people can really understand what I believe is to be the father heart of God, and that is protection and love and um, goodness and holiness, all, all the good things and not the harmful things. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that struggle a lot from people that it's usually those that we come alongside at BE. It's less about does God exist and it's more about who is he and do I trust him and do I want anything to do with him? Mm. Yeah, it's a big question. It's an important question. I'm so glad they ask it because it's something that we have to, we have to think through. 
what is the answer to that? And so we have different ways and curriculums and things and conversations that we have with people, but it comes up almost every single time. So as far as the organizations that decide to work with you, I'm curious, what kinds of organizations do? What does that look like? And the reason I want to share it is because people in our audience are looking oftentimes for a safe sense of community, whether it's a church, it's parachurch, it's, you know, some sort of community organization, some kind of club or whatever it may be. And that's really scary when you have suffered abuse to be like, how can I trust? How do I discern? How do I investigate? How can I know? And something that I love about Plan to Protect, I think it can give people a good starting place depending on the kind of community that they're looking for. So who do you serve? Well, I would say 90% of our clients are churches and Christian ministries and organizations of all different denominations and um, different faith communities. Um, that's who 80 to 90% of our clients are. Um, but we also work with community organizations, schools, camps, um, municipalities, um, sport facilities and leagues, etc. But most of our clients are churches and charities. And do you mind, and if you do, you, we could edit this out if you don't want to answer it, but I would love to give people an idea of the volume of these types of organizations that care to protect against kinds of abuses. Would you mind giving me some kind of ballpark as to how many organizations yeah. you guys do interact with? Yeah, this uh, sometimes blows my mind too. When I first started Plan to Protect, I thought, okay, I'm going to um, quit my full-time job and I'm going to work from home and I'll just be a resource if people want help. Um, but the need is so, so great. Um, currently, we probably have over 30,000 churches that have a copy of Plan to Protect our manual um, and access some of our resources and services. Um, I have partnership agreements with 17 different denominations in the United States and Canada. Um, and those denominations resource their churches with our manual. Um, and so much of our growth, Naomi, has been word of mouth. Um, I haven't had to do a lot of marketing. There is a need. And unfortunately, and I it really is unfortunate. Most of our growth has either been because there has been abuse within their walls or the insurance company is saying, you must do this. I wish that it was because they all really wanted to create a safe environment. But though they come to us sometimes with the wrong motivation, um, I think that it doesn't take them long to have their eyes opened up that this really should become part of their DNA, their vision and mission, and that safeguarding is a ministry within their churches and organizations. I think you're right that sometimes it's that, uh, that oh, it's not going to happen to us mentality. And so people may think, oh, we just don't need it. We're fine. We're solid. We're safe. Everything's good. And then kind of like you thought you were doing great initially. 
right? And you're told, no, like you've got to do more. And it's, oh my goodness, I didn't realize how prevalent this is. And all the things that we can do to make it better. Like what options do we have? Because sometimes there's there's creative thinking that needs to happen. You know, new bridges need to be built. New conversations have to be had. So I I just want to insert a round of applause there though. 30,000. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And for those of you who are listening or watching, that's good news for us. If we are in a place where we are wanting to seek out an organization where they have support for these kinds of conversations, they have some investment because it's not free either. I mean, they are putting their money where their mouths are. They are saying, yes, we are going to invest in this and we're going to ensure that we're doing this well, whether they're doing it completely freely of their own accord or if they're doing it because it's best interest of these other reasons, insurance and things like that. It is being done. And that gives me a level of confidence when I step inside the doors of an organization that is partnering with someone like Plan to Protect. Yeah. I think sometimes, Naomi, we don't know what we don't know, right? And I often say this, and knowledge is key. And I, I know it was for me, was when I started reading those lived experiences of victim survivors of abuse. It's like, how did I never think of this? How did I not know the harm that was being done? And the impact of that harm, I think that's what I want my audience to know is the impact of abuse, spiritual abuse, um, is that psychological and emotional abuse is huge. And it's a lifelong journey to um, find healing and um, get your feet back again and, and find that hope. And I want to prevent that from happening. So the more I learn and read these stories, that's what causes me to jump out of bed in the morning and say, okay, we've got more abuse to prevent today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think people do necessarily realize how the breadth and depth of the impact on somebody's life. It touches everything most often. It's huge. And that means it's going to be a lot more difficult to recover from. Yeah. Yeah. Generally speaking, talking about spiritual abuse specifically, what is the posture that you've seen towards the reality of this specific kind of abuse? Because this this can be, I've at least found, it can be a little bit more difficult to get people on board with and to understand because it's more recently being talked about. I write hundreds of policies a year for churches and Christian ministries. And um, I always recommend that within their policies and procedures that they define the different types of abuse. And um, spiritual abuse, religious abuse, is deeply rooted in emotional and um, psychological abuse. And so many churches and Christian ministries don't even want to define this because I think they don't believe that it could happen within their walls. But I think that the likelihood that it could happen is very, very prevalent if it's not identified and defined and taught and um, 
that steps aren't put in place to prevent it and respond appropriately. So I have found for years now that um, so many churches and Christian ministries um, are not really aware of it, don't think about it, deny that it could happen. So almost that um, place of ignorance, um, well, really. And, and because it's sometimes hard to define and nobody really likes to land on a clear definition even you and I have had great conversations about that in the past. I think that they just don't want to include it in their policies. But there's a great danger if we don't identify it and define it and put processes in place to address it properly. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. I mean, I do, but I very strongly would disagree. I guess is how I could put it with anyone who would be hesitant to put it in policy form. Now, again, I get where it's like, well, it can be kind of gray and kind of vague and like, how are we defining it? And how do we even sniff it out and know if it's what's going on and getting to the bottom of it? And the, this person said this, or that. like, I, I understand like the investigation and the understanding and all of this can feel very uncomfortable. And also, like I said, kind of gray at times. And yet, if we're going to take scripture seriously, which if we're a church or a parachurch organization, I certainly hope that we would be, then there are really major consequences to not being really intentional about spiritual abuse. If we're going to take passages like James 3.1 about accountability of teachers, people in leadership, if we're going to take those things seriously, then we're going to have a really big issue. Um, or, I'm sorry, we're going to have a really big issue if we don't. Because I don't see this as, oh, okay, you know, someone messed up and we just move on. People lose their faith over spiritual abuse. Like you said, they, they see God different. They don't actually know who he is. And there's really major consequences to this like huge consequences to this. And so for people to have this idea of like, oh, well, it's just policy or not policy or whatever. It's like, no, you've got to understand how these lives are impacted. This is really, really, this is really big. And it can have generational impact because it can impact how people raise their children and how they raise their children. And this is a big deal. You know, I'm thankful to be someone who's doing the opposite, someone who has been by God's grace, am able to be someone who's raising my child differently in a, in a hopeful direction versus the opposite because I've got some generational lineage that's the opposite. But like, think back to how that happened. I was doing some family history stuff recently, which I don't necessarily recommend for people. It was kind of a downer, honestly. <laughs> but it looks like my family, someone in every single generation has been in pastoral ministry since they first came over to the Americas in the 1600s. I mean, can you imagine? I'm like, how did all this start? I mean, where do we even go back to? And it just blows my mind. I'm like, yeah, you guys, this impact is really, really big. I can go several generations back for how that went down and how it landed at my dad as being a cult leader. He didn't just do it on his own. 
you know, it came through generational, like he was, he was set up well for it. Now he still could have chosen otherwise, just like I have, but he was, he was set up for it. That's for sure. And I'm like, gosh, I just, I feel how big it is. I feel how significant it is. I feel how, how long the impact can hang around from generation to generation. And so for anyone in a leadership position who would not take that seriously, either they should not be in leadership or they just don't see it and they really need education. So I'm always going to lean for education first. And I love that that's where you focus is let's share about this more. Naomi, I think about the, the illustration of the frog in the boiling water, you know, and the slow boil, you know, and he doesn't even realize of the slow boil. And I, I, you and I were both brought up in very conservative backgrounds. And um, I just think about how so much of it seemed acceptable and um, we didn't question it, what was being told to us and how we were told to interact and, and communicate and or not communicate and um, how we were to dress. And, and I just, again, think that it's so important that we define that power differential and the harm power differential can have in someone's life and accountability. Um, and I think about Jesus and his posture of being humble, you know, and being a servant. But our churches and our parachurch ministries almost have turned that on the head. Instead, it's all about control and authority and and I think that that's where we make room for abuse and that's why it's so important to name this in your policies and procedures and in your training call each other to account for your actions your tone your interactions um, even how you use scripture when you're mentoring or counseling or discipling someone um, because that's where it can become that slippery slope and all of a sudden there's this culture of um, abuse that is happening and it's accepted and people aren't questioning it. You're absolutely right too that it's not always that senior pastor position or whatever that senior leadership role is. It's not always that person. We hear so many accounts of leadership at all different levels. So say someone's over, whether it's the youth pastor, of course, there's stories about that, but also people who are in mentorship roles, like you just mentioned. So someone who's just an older, older generation, not necessarily, it might just be five, 10 years older than whomever the mentee is and not doing good things. And it's, it ends up being an abuse situation. We see it with people overseeing volunteers, of course, and so it's not always that that senior pastor who's up on or the senior teaching pastor who's, you know, up on stage preaching on Sundays. It can be anyone who is in a position of authority over someone else in a religious environment. And we even see that within homes. I had that recently brought up to me and I'm like, absolutely, this can be happening inside of people's homes. And so what is being taught within the congregation what are they teaching? You know, what is leadership teaching? How is this being modeled 
so that the message is is making it into the households of religious abuse can exist domestically too. And so what are we doing organizationally to send the message that that is not actually in alignment with Christianity, that that is wrong? So true. Would you say that that education piece, that awareness piece, do you think that that's the the biggest challenge right now for churches and parachurch organizations in regards to religious abuse, or would you say there's something else going on? Well, it has to start at the top, you know. Um, It has to start with the board, whether that be a board of elders or deacons or trustees. It has to start at the senior leadership um, role where they define what religious spiritual abuse is and covenant to care for their people um, and then drive that through the church or parachurch organization within a training setting and also role modeling. I do not think board members should ever speak on their own. They speak as a unit. They speak as a um, one voice. But too often you hear, see one board member um, you exerting his power and authority and control in isolation of the rest of the board. So I think that we need accountability. Accountability is such a key piece um, to combat religious abuse. And then um, making sure that the people within the church and the parachurch organization understand that we are going, there's a safe place to speak about this. We need whistleblower policies um, where people will not um, be ignored and ostracized or interrupted when they have a story to tell about abuse, but that that report will be taken seriously. I think that that is so important. And then the training. Um, It needs not just one-time training. Trauma-informed training needs to happen on an ongoing basis. Abuse prevention training and safeguarding training have to happen on an annual basis. And in all of our trainings, there's three elements to everything we do within our training at Plan to Protect. And that is an awareness piece where we're raising awareness of the different forms of abuse and the prevalence of that abuse. And then a prevention piece. What are we going to prevent? Um, How are we going to prevent this from happening within our walls? But also a reporting and response piece that protection piece, how are we going to protect those that are being abused in this way, be it, you know, physical, sexual, emotional, spiritual abuse? How are we going to respond and um, deal with reports of this form of abuse? So there's so many things that are needed. It's not just one piece. I think it's all those elements that are needed. Mm-hmm. And in regards to what, what are people, how are they going to respond? How are they going to come alongside and help someone? 
someone, their heart can be in the right place. And they're like, well, reach out to us. It's like, yeah, but y'all aren't safe right now. And maybe that's not fair because it wasn't everybody. But we need an unbiased third party that the person gets connected to so that they know, okay, I'm receiving support. That's not going to get back over there. It's purely confidential. And I keep running into that as organizations that are saying, yeah, like we, we want that to be different and we want to help, but they're wanting to help internally. And it's like, it's just not going to work because by default, you're not, you're not, you represent the organization where abuse happened right now. And again, that's not fair for everybody, but it's just not going to feel safe to the person who just went through that experience and who is suffering. They've got to go somewhere where they can feel safe to actually receive support. Others have all their walls up. They're going to dissociate. They're going to shut down. It's like, it's not actually going to help them. So a big key when we want to help someone, and I'm saying this to everyone out there as you're looking, you know, for what support looks like, you're probably going to need it to look like what is actually going to work for you or it's not actually going to help because it's not going to land. You're not going to be able to receive it. And when someone has been abused, it's not about how I want to help them or how Melody wants or how anyone else wants to help them. It's about how does that person going to be able to receive getting help? How's that going to work? We want to hit the target, so to speak. We want what we're doing to be effective and actually help them. And so I think Sometimes we need very well-intentioned people to acknowledge, I can't be the one to fix it though. I can't be the one. Now I can be kind and I can make sure the person's going to get what they're going to need. I can leave the door open to be reached out to. Absolutely. But I can't, as much as I may want to, because my heart's breaking for what happened within the walls of this organization I'm a part of, I can't be that person in that way for this individual. And it's not about me. So I'm going to do it however it needs to be done. Because what's important is that they get the help. And I, I want to see one of, the, of that. I was just going to say, Naomi, I think one of the best ways that someone within a church can help someone that has been victimized by that church or parachurch organization is to resource them. Um, because otherwise it may become unsafe for them too. And that I've heard too many cases of that. So if you really want to walk alongside someone, be a friend to them, um, be that listening ear, care for them, but resource them, tell them what resources are out there um, that they can tap into, whether that is professional counseling or organizations like Be Emboldened, um, community organizations where they can get help um, and then just continue to be a safe person in their life. Hmm. What would you say is the biggest win that you're seeing? What have you found encouraging in this context? I've had a lot of wins in the past 15, 17 years since I've done Plan to Protect. At first, there was so much opposition and pushback and um, ignorance and people's eyes are being opened up right now to the prevalence of power differentials. So I think the awareness of power differentials is huge when it comes to the faith community. Because if we can really understand the role we have and 
there's always power differentials. There's power differentials in every everything we do, right? There's power, like if I'm driving down the road and all of a sudden there's a police car behind me with their lights on, there's a power differential there. And I can easily become intimidated. When I go to the doctor's office, you know, um, when I even, you know, even go into a grocery store, um, there's power differentials. And parenting relationships and classrooms, there's power differentials. It's okay. Power differentials are okay. But what we have to recognize is the, the abuse that can happen within those power differentials. And what are we going to do to try to find greater balance um, so that we don't abuse our power? And part of that is giving people choices and giving them agency um, to make their own decision. And I think a huge win for me is all of a sudden to see our clients recognize and name um, where there could be abuse, um, where, you know, to do a risk assessment and identify where the weak links are and where abuse could happen and put in good policies and procedures to combat it. With all of these policies and procedures and all of these different conversations you have of that nature, and that sort of inside scoop that you have on what, what this looks like for an organization, what that process looks like, what would you recommend someone be looking at when they're seeking a healthy, safe church community or even a parachurch organization that maybe they want to get involved with? What would be good, maybe some questions that they should ask, for example? I love this question because I wish I knew when I was a parent of a child the age of your child, I wish I knew then what I know now. Um, I think of all the extracurricular activities I would put my children into, whether that be piano or dance or sports or even Sunday school or youth group, all those activities. And I just was blind and ignorant and just enrolled them and just assumed everyone was going to create a safe place for my child. And now I think it's so important to educate individuals, whether they're picking a new community of faith or putting their children in a program or an activity, is to ask questions about, you know, what, are, what have you done to safeguard participants in your program what steps have you done and too often you'll hear well we do a police record check on everyone wrong answer you know yes they should do a police record check but if that's all they've done they are really missing the mark I would want to see that there's training done on an ongoing basis both safeguarding training and trauma-informed training on response. I'd want to know that there are policies and procedures in place. I would want to know that my child is not being left alone with just one individual. Um, I would want 
to sit under their teaching for a while. And if that even means listening to some sermons or messages on the internet before I walk in the door to understand how they're using scripture and, um, you know, if they're teaching the whole council of scripture or if they're just taking and manipulating one scripture for their own benefit. Um, so those are some things I'd be watching for. I'd want to see how people interact with leadership, you know, and is there an, an equal playing field um, where people can speak into each other's lives in a safe, in a safe way? That's what I think we should be looking for. Mm -hmm. Thinking about what you brought up about, you know, kids like my son's age, I have not been able to, and I think it's good, but sometimes it can be like, gosh, other people do some of this stuff so easy. And I just, I can't, I can't just drop him off at the community, whatever, for a few hours on kids night out and go out with my husband. Like, I don't know these people. Like, I don't know. I mean, there was one thing where we went to and it looked like it was going to be good. And my husband and I went to drop him off and then we ended up staying and he played, but we could see him through the glass and we just hung out there <laughs> because we're like, what even happens? It was like, it was a lot of kids to a couple of like teenage workers, you know, who were doing the best they could, but somewhat aloof, to be honest, you know, and I'm like, there's the age range was like five, which was him, you know, he's five all the way up to, I think like 12 or something. So it's, I don't know how these kids are interacting with him when I stop and see them talking. I don't know what they're saying to him. I don't know what they're talking about. What if he had to go use the restroom in that three hours? Is anyone, is there an adult going with him to make sure like who else is in there? I mean, there's just all these sorts of things. I'm like, I just, I can't do it. And it can feel, I say this for any parents out there who are maybe feeling like there's something wrong with them. I, there's something that comes with awareness and from whether it's our personal experience or it's stories we've heard that I think can make us wiser. <laughs> and so even though it's like, gosh, I kind of wish I could just, I mean, you wouldn't wish that you could just if something happened. So I, I decide, I choose to be grateful that I'm aware so I can prayerfully help make decisions to keep my son safer. Another example is there's a life group we had wanted to go to, which is a big statement for me, for anyone who has followed along. I'm not really a life group gal. That's something that could be really tough for me to be a part of. But there was a life group that we wanted to check out and we had met, you know, some of the people in it. And they're just absolutely lovely. I can't do the all the kids just go in the basement or go outside or go in a room, though, while Thank all the adults you. are together. I'm like, I can't. Good for you, Naomi. And, and God bless those other children. I'm not saying they're monsters. It's just we're just not there to over. They need us. Yeah. They need us to disciple them and to help them and to help, you know, navigate things and and I'm not even going worst case scenario, though I easily could. But still, it's like we just, we can just take it for granted that, oh, it's a Christian environment. And y'all, anyone who's experienced religious abuse, where it was within a Christian environment, we know what that can look like because unfortunately, humanity is a mess. And it can be a beautiful mess at times, but it can also just be a horrific mess at other times. And so how do we make these decisions? knowing the responsibility that we have. It's something that weighs really heavily on me. So Melody, I appreciate you speaking to it. 
And again, for any parents out there, anyone in a parental role playing, you know, a guardian role, if you're struggling with these things, I don't think it means there's something wrong with you. I think it means you're aware and you're really trying to raise that child well and safely. And I just, I commend you for doing so. And how can we do that? Like, again, my son doesn't necessarily miss out. It's just, I don't get to peace out and go have dinner with my husband. I got to figure out a different date night scenario for myself. I would want to see in that life group setting that there are adults with those children, that there are at least two unrelated screened adults in that, you know, taking care of the children during that life group. Um, that there's that young people are never left alone with children under the umbrella of a church or parent church organization, that there's always adult supervision. Too many of the phone calls I get about abuse happen within young people who are abusing children. Um, so I'd be looking for the, again, policies around life groups and supervision of children and appropriate ratios and, um, you know, clear communication with parents so that as a parent, I know what the program is. I know what television show or movies or books they're reading, um, that parents are involved in the discipleship and in really the choice of the programming that's provided. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not necessarily the, uh, it's not always the, the leadership um, who is going to cause the harm. It can be that there's still a power differential, like you said, in the ages of the kids. So when I experienced abuse of that kind, it was a teenage boy. And I was probably, I think I was only six. I believe I was in kindergarten, if I'm remembering correctly. And it was, let's play hide and seek. And he hid me with his body. And it's like, I mean, so it's just, it's an older child. He was like 11 or 12, maybe something like that. And so, and it was taken seriously, fortunately. And, you know, it was handled, but it wasn't, it wasn't some set leadership person. It was like, oh yeah, the kids are playing and it's fine. And it's, we need that oversight. It's really important. So yeah, again, thank you for speaking to that. And it comes up in so many different ways and different forms. So thinking through what checks and balances do we have? Who's the oversight? Do we trust that oversight? And also to what degree, this may sound silly, but what to, to what degree do I have to trust the oversight? Because there's certain roles that people may be in where I'm like, well, I, I don't so much know that person, but that's okay because I'm not engaging with that person. Now, I would still want to be aware if there was abuse, that person needed to be turned in. I'm happy to be a whistleblower. But we're not going to know everybody super deeply. And so I'd want to take that burden off of people too. You're not necessarily going to be able to do that. But asking those questions, like you were mentioning, Melody, of, okay, what, what do we have in place? And we can get a lot online. We can get a lot of information online. I know you mentioned listening to some sermons online, things like that, whatever it may be. So we can get a lot online. We're going to get a lot through someone's tone too when we interact with them. That's going to be really telling on if the person's taking it seriously or not. And so I really appreciate when I have the opportunity to sit down and talk with someone. And I usually will request that because I want to hear how they're going to respond. You can get a lot through the body language, the verbal and nonverbal cues. 
that are going to give you more of an indication of, you know, yeah, how seriously are they taking it? And one other comment I wanted to make, Melody, is about that regular training. Because not only for new staff, because someone might be thinking, oh, yeah, like people get hired. And yes, absolutely for new staff, definitely refreshers for existing staff, bring it back to front of mind. Also, the things we're talking about when we're talking about abuses, those kinds of trainings would fall into the social sciences, like sociology and psychology. So we're talking human behavior and things like that. So it's falling into those social sciences. And just like sciences, like biology and chemistry, we continue to learn more. And so we want to make sure that we're up to date on new studies that have come out, new research, new models, new interventions. So we want to make sure that we're staying fresh and we're also staying up to date and we're retiring things maybe that haven't proven to be as effective. So that's part of that ongoing training. So 100%, I completely agree. I think too, an important aspect here, just to make sure that everyone understands this, Naomi, is religious abuse and spiritual abuse often accompanies other forms of abuse. For instance, someone that is being sexually abused Someone may end up using spiritual abuse, religious abuse to silence the sexual abuse that's happening. Same thing with physical abuse or domestic violence. Um, So those two forms of abuse so often intertwine and um, spiritual abuse can happen. I can remember a victim telling me that they were sexually abused on the mission field. And the individuals that were abusing them in the mission organization said to the young people and the children that had been sexually abused, if you tell anyone um, that this happened, your parents are going to have to leave the mission field. And that means that people are going to die and go to hell and not be able to go to heaven. And it's going to be on you. So sexual abuse happened. But then that spiritual abuse, religious abuse came into place trying to silence the victims. And that's why that training is so important to name the different forms of abuse and to, I, to define them and also to learn what those indicators are to recognize those different forms of abuse. Mm-hmm. Most often, religious abuse is being tied up with another form. We're seeing that a lot. And the way I think about it is, and it's not really a perfect analogy, because I think of it as more like an umbrella, but an umbrella has one handle. So if anyone has a better analogy, feel free to comment (laughs) on this video and let me know. And like religious abuse to me, I'm like, it can be sort of this umbrella where these other forms of, maybe it's more like a table, these other forms of abuses are connected with it. And so whether it's happening in an actual religious environment, like a church or a parachurch organization or a home church or whatever that would be, or if it's religious language being used to justify the abuse in an environment that's not otherwise religiously defined. So say it's a household or you know, on on a playground. I mean, it could literally happen anywhere in that regard where someone's using God, the Bible, 
whatever it may be, in order to coerce someone into getting what they want from that person. And so whenever we're seeing that kind of language and that sort of reasoning being twisted and used to get something from someone and fulfill that person's agenda, there's religious abuse, but there's also whatever that other form is, whether it's sexual, physical, can be neglect as well. We certainly see neglect come up too. So yeah, it can get very, very messy, very fast, and it gets complex. And so someone may also need more of a team of support. And that's something that we love to be a part of at Be Emboldened, to be able to collaborate with other support professionals so that person has the whole team that they need and everyone's really staying where they where they are the strongest, where they thrive, where they should be. Everyone's kind of staying in their lane, but everyone's able to come together and offer that trauma-informed, compassionate care for someone so that they're getting all their needs met. So Melody, if someone is interested in Plan to Protect, wondering about organizations that you all serve, I'm curious, are they able to see if their organization is a member with you or if they're checking out a new church, be able to see, are they partnered with Plan to Protect? Because maybe that, that's, you know, I take that as a, a good stamp of approval of, okay, I'm willing to go check this place out because I see they have this relationship. Great question. On our website, we have a list of clients that we have worked with, and we also have an extensive list of members. Um, and you could always ask the organization if their members of Plan to Protect. Most most Plan to Protect members will be showcasing their member certificate. Um, you can always reach out to us at Plan to Protect info at Plan to Protect .com. Um, and we'd certainly be able to tell you if we have worked with a certain organization or not. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for what you do. It really, truly, it, it offers peace of mind to people like myself who are wondering, where do I start? If you have an organization near you that is being served by Plan to Protect, I think that's a really great place to start. And I would investigate from there. Like I would check them out and see if it's a good fit for you. So thank you, thank you for all that you're doing and thank you for being here for me and with me. I appreciate you. I appreciate you too.